1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, family. It's really good to see you today. If you're visiting with us, not yet a part of our family, a friend, a guest, uh, we're really glad that you're here. realize that some of you are just here to visit family and friends, and then you're bouncing, but others of you are here um, because you're new to the island and you're visiting different churches. Really glad that you're here, and our hope would be to uh, see you move from friendship into our family. We would really look forward to sharing a season of life with you, participating in the life of our family. I wasn't here last week. I missed you guys. I took a quick trip to the deep south of the U.S. of A. I was in Louisville, and uh, that's deep south if you're from Vermont. And uh, <laughs> look, I want to say I know I, I, know I uh, give some flack to those of you who are Jesus chicken people, all you Chick-fil-A uh, people. <laughs> Um, uh, I actually ate some while I was in Louisville once, I, I ate one, but um, I did because it was free and somebody else uh, got it for me. Otherwise, I had zero intention of going. I found myself in a car with a guy and he's like, hey, let's get dinner, let's go to uh, Chick-fil-A. And Jesus said, be all things to all people, so I can eat food sacrificed to idols too for the good of other people, so I love you guys. <laughs> Let's pray. We'll get right down to work this morning. Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for mercies, your kindness, which are new to us again on another day. Father, we pray for all those who are weary and heavy laden. We pray that as they seek Jesus today, that Jesus, they would see you and find you, and in finding you, that you would give give them rest. Father, for those who are hurting and simply need kindness and nearness, I pray that they would know you as the God who is both near and kind. And Spirit, we would acknowledge, again, just the need for our hearts to be brought to life, uh, to know life and our dependence upon you. So we would just ask that it just as in the very beginning when you breathed faith and life into our hearts and 
uh, brought us to life. That again this morning as we sit and bring ourselves close to you, that uh, we would experience your renewal, your restorative work, uh, your reconciling work, and that you would bring our hearts to life again this morning. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So last week, Vince kicked us off in our new series, First Thessalonians. We learned that First Thessalonians is a letter written to a church plant just like ours, a new church. Paul's the one who wrote the letter. Paul's the one who planted the church. He was only with that church for a couple weeks before he was ripped away. We read that in the letter. We know he was ripped away. Uh, there was some real conflict in Thessalonica, some real opposition. He was forced out of the town. So while he was physically ripped away, you could not rip Paul's heart away from the people in Thessalonica. Uh, this letter, um, sometimes we think of the Bible and we think these are all things that we need to know. And while there's truth to that, like th this is, uh, these are proposed truths that we need to know, uh, and that's true of the letter to Thessalonica. The letter is a feeling letter. It's something that you read and you feel. It's heartfelt. Paul loved these people deeply. And I mean, he was so concerned for them because they were experiencing incredible persecution. Uh, he had deep concern for them, like a, like a mother for her kids, like a father for uh, his kids. And so this is very much a feeling book. This, if it were a movie, were the movie that you're watching in the dark and you're thankful for the darkness because you can kind of dab your eyes and dry the tears away without other people realizing that you're crying. Like if, if this were a movie and we were watching it together, you would want all the lights in the room off so that you could cry privately. This is a feeling letter. Paul had incredible affection for these people. And in the heart of this letter, there's a thread that runs all the way through. It's a gospel thread, and it's Paul's expressed desire that all churches in all cities of all time would be shaped by the gospel. And when we are shaped by the gospel, it is a beautiful, uh, it is a beautiful family that results when we are not shaped by the gospel, it is a broken and empty religious expression in which you will find no life, no beauty, and no transformative power from the gospel. So that's our letter that Paul wrote to this young church plant in Thessalonians. Our title for the morning is simply Gospel Family, and our big idea is this, though much church culture may be broken... Let's call it gospel fake. Ours can be beautiful, and we will call that gospel family, right? Though much church culture is broken. I imagine some of you have experienced broken church culture. Have you? Some of you probably left church for long seasons because of brokenness that you experienced and were wounded by firsthand. Some of that brokenness maybe led you to be somewhat agnostic, skeptical, maybe to turn away from the faith for a season. Um, maybe this is for some of you a season where you're just now trying to experience life in God's family again. But church brokenness abounds in our own culture. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Ours does not have to be a culture of brokenness, gospel fake. Ours can be beautiful. It can be a beautiful gospel family. Here's our outline for the day. 
You know I'm a simple guy, so here's my simple outline. Uh, gospel formed, gospel fake, and gospel family, right? We already saw the ideas of gospel fake and family in the big idea, but what I want to do as we unpack those two uh, points is we really need to talk, begin by talking about being gospel formed, because, I mean, let's just get it all on the table at the outset so this is clear. We want all of this to be very clear. This, the difference, like the the one difference between being gospel fake and an actual healthy gospel family is whether or not we are being formed by the gospel. There's no other pathway and there's no other explanation, right? If we looked, if, if we were, um, if we put a dead church on the mortician's table, right? And we're going to do an autopsy. Uh, you could do an autopsy on any dead church and you will find no matter the symptoms behind every dead church, that's the one root, a lack of gospel formation, a lack of the gospel being center in the life of the church. Okay, so we'll go in that order. Uh, gospel formation, gospel fake, and gospel family. Linnea read this for us this morning, and you probably heard it mentioned. Um, how many of you were here last week for Vince's opening sermon? All right, so about half of you. Where'd the rest of you go? <clears throat> I know you weren't at Chick-fil-A. Well, they're not open on Sundays anyway. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you were here last week, you know that the gospel featured prominently in all of chapter one. And Vince did a great job talking about what the gospel is. Well, the gospel features prominently again in chapter two, and there's a reason for that. I like the way, actually it was three or four times repeated this way. It, um, uh, Paul wrote it as the gospel of God. That's kind of unique. You don't see that all over the New Testament. I like it written that way. It's a reminder that we know gospel means good news. And those two extra words of God reminds us that it belong, it's good news that comes from God to us. It originates with him. It belongs to him. So it's God's good news that we already sang about it this morning, that at just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we receive mercy instead of judgment. That is the good news. It is the gospel of God, right? Verse 2 of chapter 2 uh, on the screen for you says, although we, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to, to, to declare to you the gospel or the good news of God. Now, we see that repeated throughout the chapter. And what I want to do uh, briefly is just point you back to chapter one, some of the ground that Vince covered last week, uh, just so that we understand what the gospel of God is and what the gospel of God does. And what I want you to see is that the gospel is both word and power, right? It's, it is something, it's propositional truth, but the word works, like it does something. It's not a passive word. When the gospel is present in our hearts and in the, the heart of our church family, it goes to work. And we see that, just flip back to chapter one, verses five to seven, will also be on the screen for you. I'll look at how Paul explains this. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word. So it did come to you in word, right? The gospel's a word, it's a truth, but also in what? 
power. So the gospel, the word has power to it. And uh, make sure you're here next week. I'm really looking forward to the sermon. The next portion in this letter, actually, uh, another one of our pastors, Darren Pouts, will be preaching this for us. It's the simple idea that the word works, like the, the word really works. We'll see that next week. Uh, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. Why does it have power? Because it came to us in the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, works in our hearts through the gospel, right? Through the word and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now look at this, verse six. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you, here's a very key word for us. You received the word. So you received the gospel in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The difference between gospel fake and gospel family, the difference between broken and beautiful is whether or not we have a receptive posture to the gospel, to the word of God. Now, what we need to see is that is a first-time receptivity. In other words, when we were rebels, we had no receptivity to the gospel. And so for the, that very first day, that very first moment where we received the gospel, and our, our hearts were open to the gospel. It brought us to life, and it took what was broken and began to make it beautiful. Now, that's not meant to be a one-time occurrence for a person or for a church. Though we need that first and one time to bring us to life, the gospel is meant by God the Father to be received daily so that we are continually brought to life and continually reformed around it. So in other words, uh, on any given day, if our hearts are closed to the gospel, whether personally or as a church family, we will bend back towards brokenness and away from beauty. But on each successive day, as we humbly submit to the Father, we open our hearts, Father, please go to work in my heart through the gospel, go to work in the heart of our church family through the gospel. We are bent away from brokenness and towards beauty, right? Receptivity to the gospel is the difference, the single difference between gospel fake and gospel family, between brokenness and between beauty. Uh, that's exactly what Paul says here in chapter one. Uh, last thing I want to point out, and we'll bounce back to chapter two. Uh, at the end of verse seven, Paul says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Why were they examples? Because they received the gospel and it became beautiful. And so Paul could point at this church family and be like, guys, look how beautiful this is. Remember how broken they were? They turned to God, to serve the living God from serving idols. Like they were jacked up and God took what was broken and he made it beautiful and it's becoming increasingly beautiful as they continue to receive the gospel. How beautiful? Look at this in verse two, chapter one. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, three things, look at this. This is what beauty looks like in the life of a church. Three things, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Beauty is a family that abounds in, man, haven't we seen these all over the New Testament before? How familiar is that? Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is, you've read that before. That's what makes us beautiful, faith, hope, and love. Now, the thing about faith, hope, and love is you can't be like, man, we need faith. Let's pursue faith. 
Um, faith is secondary. It's a byproduct. Faith comes as our hearts are receptive to the gospel. Faith is the result of receptivity. Uh, when our hope is fading, the answer is not pursue hope. You, can, you can't go grab more hope. You can't go, it's not for sale. You can't go buy it. You can't read a book and get hope. You can't, hope is gained as our hearts are open to the gospel. That's what gives us hope, right? And the same with love. Our love for each other will increase. Look, definitely not by focusing on the people who need to be loved. You focus on me, you'll see more unlovable qualities, you can ask the people closest to me. Thank you. Thank you. Did you say that's right? Yeah, that's, exa- that's right. That's exactly right. There should be a room full of amens. Guys, for the unlovable people in your life, like me, you don't gain a heart that's more inclined to love them by trying harder or focusing on them. The only way your heart will be inclined to love unlovable people is receptivity to the gospel. And as the word goes to work in your heart through the work of the Spirit, your heart will almost mysteriously, because it's you can't explain it, it's not you, will increasingly be inclined to love unlovable people. And that's what makes a church family beautiful. So that's why Paul's like, man, you're an example. You're an example because you have gospel receptivity. Because you're receptive to the gospel, you're a church that abounds in faith, hope, and love. Everybody wants to be part of a community, whether you're religious or not. You want to belong to a family and a community that abounds in faith, hope, and love. Why? Those are beautiful qualities. To be part of a people group that lacks hope is empty. To be part of a people group that is unloving is uh, horrible, right? You, you don't want to be part of something that has no faith, hope, or love. It's absolutely beautiful. So there's gospel formation, which is going to help us make sense of chapter two, right? It's all about gospel receptivity. Now let's talk about gospel fake uh, for a few moments, our second point. Um, Chapter two opens interestingly. There's one of two things going on, and we don't know exactly which of them is going on, but it's okay. We don't have to know. The way that chapter two is going to read is it's going to make us feel like, one, Paul is responding to critics, people who would say, now you're fake. You came to us in Thessalonica. The word that you're going to see is in vain. Uh, The word in vain means you came to us, but you were insincere. It was vain. It It didn't mean anything. You were insincere. Uh, It could mean insincerity, or it could mean like impotency, lack of power. So either you came to us and you didn't mean, it was insincere. It was all a show. It was all for your own gain. Or you came to us and you were sincere, but religion is powerless. God is powerless. The gospel is powerless. So Paul's either responding to his critics, you'll see that, or if he's not responding to critics, because he doesn't name anybody, the other possibility is he's simply drawing a contrast for us of what that beautiful culture looks like, and when the gospel is not present, uh, what the alternative is, what, what, what religion minus gospel centrality looks like. Okay? So it's one of, those, one of those two things. Uh, that's helpful for us because I'm telling you, as we read this first half of chapter two, I think you're going to be able to pick out some key words and, and say to yourself, well, I've experienced that in the life of the church. Like, wow, I, when I experienced gospel brokenness, right, gospel fake, 
that's exactly what I experienced. That's what wounded me. That's what turned me off to Christianity. Like you're going to see it. I think it's very, very obvious. And then about halfway through chapter two, Paul's going to pivot from fake gospel, fake to gospel family. So let's, let's explore the first half of the chapter gospel, fake. He says, you yourselves, in verse 1, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. So people are saying it was fake, insincere, powerless. It wasn't. And he offers up some initial evidence for this, although he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it. He's he's trying to prove his sincerity in verse 2. He says, look, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, the city where we were before Thessalonica. Like we were trying to plant a church and preach the gospel and we were treated so poorly. We were brutalized. Yet, as you know, we had boldness in our God to come to you and to declare declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict here. In other words, if we weren't sincere about this, why would we go from one town where we're being suffered and locked up to another town where it would get even worse? We'd be crazy. Right? So he's appealing to sincerity through suffering right there. He said, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And then he's going to get into um, uh, kind of some of the specifics of how people were saying his coming to them was in vain. Look at this in verse 3. What we're going to see is we're going to see them kind of attack his appeal or the stuff that he said to them. And we're also going to see his approach attacked, right? His posture towards people. Here's the appeal, right? For our appeal does not spring from, now there are three kind of accusations here, um, error, impurity, or an attempt to deceive. Those are familiar ideas to us or familiar words. Now, let's just start from the cultural standpoint. There are a lot of people in our culture who would say uh, to us as Christians that, When it comes to our appeal, uh, you're kind people, you're well-meaning people, but everything you're saying is so deeply rooted in error. Like, you go do your church thing, have fun with that, believe it if you want to, it's just deeply rooted in error, right? That would, you mean well, but really, that you believe in an invisible God, you believe in this stuff that was written how many years ago by how many different authors, Uh, okay, you can can have that, right? Uh, springing from error, or here's another cultural idea, impurity. Uh, You're not actually well-meaning. There's an agenda behind your religion. Namely, uh, you gather a bunch of religious people around you and you can compel them to do anything that you want to them, uh, that you want from them by guilting them through this all-powerful God that will reward good behavior, punish bad behavior. Namely, you should be given lots of your money right? That's a prevalent view among non-Christians. Y'all are crazy. You do this thing with this invisible God and these ancient documents, and you give 10%, 15%, 20% of your income? That's insane, right? So it's springing from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Gospel fake. Paul says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, we don't speak to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Uh, For we never came with words of flattery. So we kind of saw their appeal question. Now here's their approach. They're saying, look, in verse five, he's saying, uh, you came with words of flattery, with a pretext for greed, 
and you came seeking glory. Uh, That word flattery can be connected with the line behind it that says, uh, we speak not to please man. So flattery would simply be speaking to please man. So a lot of uh, criticism from culture or even from those of us who have turned away from God's family because of gospel fake experiences that we've had, we would, we or our culture might look and say, yeah, man, you're just like, you're just saying that to reinforce uh, views that people already hold. For example, evangelicals in America, one of the um, most abiding and maybe, maybe most accurate accusations thrown out there is it's simply a voting block and you've got a Bible verse to justify every political opinion you already hold, right? That would be one example. Words of flattery, like speaking on behalf of God in a way that affirms or confirms where people already are rather than calling them out and calling them closer to to God. Or with a pretext for greed, we hit that one already. Like you, you're gathering and you're, you're doing this Christian thing for selfish gain. And maybe here's one that strikes closest to home for us. Look at verse six. He says, we, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands because we were apostles. There's a real problem with Christian culture in the West that predisposes a lot of our church experiences to gospel fake. And that is church has become very much a consumer-driven product, right? And so we roll in with demands for what our church experience should be. So we have demands on the church itself, and we have relational demands that we bring into the room with us for all the people seated around us. And we have this underlying sense that we deserve to have these demands, right? That's a cancer to our Christianity, and it's a real symptom of gospel fake, not gospel family, which we already, we already identified this. If we chase all the symptoms back, what's the root cause of that attitude? What is it? Right, a lack of receptivity to the gospel. My heart is not open to and not receptive to the gospel. But Paul's like, look, If anybody could have rolled in and had demands, we could have had demands. We were apostles, first generation messengers on behalf of God with a very specific, not only mission, but authority given them to Jesus. So just quick informal poll. Any apostles in the room? I realize that's a dangerous question. All right, so nobody's publicly disclosing that they're an apostle. So what, but, so what we're doing through that little exercise is then saying, we would acknowledge that, all right, Paul and the other apostles legitimately could walk in here to any other church and have some, it would be fair for them to, to, to have some demands because of the authority given them by Jesus. But if none of us are apostles, then it's not appropriate for us to enter into any church family with demands. No demands. Approaching church with demands is a symptom of gospel fake, not gospel family. Approaching church with demands, if it's a symptom of gospel fake, means my root issue is the gospel is not working in my heart. I'm not receptive to the gospel. Gospel fake. Okay? So we get a little bit of a picture of gospel fake here. Now let me just ask you, as we explored some of those themes... Have any of you been a part of church culture 
um, in places other than Okinawa that would exhibit some, Okinawa too, because we're not perfect. Have you seen some of those symptoms in your church culture experiences? Right, yeah, getting a lot of head nods. We've, we've been in the brokenness. But here's the encouraging word from Thessalonians this morning. Just because much of church culture is broken, and just because there are pieces of our culture that are broken right now, doesn't mean that the brokenness cannot be bent towards beauty, and it doesn't mean that our family here uh, cannot be beautiful now as a result of gospel receptivity. That is the good news. And um, I know we're talking about the church, but let's just step away from that for one minute. And I would just ask you um, to consider how this gives good news to every other area of your life. Let me just ask you, where in your life is there relational brokenness? Like, just think about that for a moment. Where are you wounded? Where are you bitter? Right? Where is there animosity in your heart? Where, instead of having a curiosity or an openness, is there a closed heart? Where, instead of warmth, is there cold? Right? Where, instead of love, is there hate? Right? Just where, where are those things in your life? And the good news of the gospel is that though all of those, they feel insurmountable to you, because they, most of them really are. You can't fix most of that on your own. You cannot change most of that in the depths of your heart. The good news of the gospel is the antidote, if you will, or the medicine for your soul is not fixing yourself. The medicine for your soul is opening your heart to the gospel. The spirit goes to work in your heart, healing what is wounded and bending your heart back towards beauty. So the good news of the gospel is that reconciliation and restoration are possible, not only in your own personal lives, but in the life of any church that has been broken or has elements of brokenness. When the gospel is present and working, nothing is beyond restoration or reconciliation. The gospel makes everything restorative. Right? It's beautiful. So there's gospel fake, and now Paul is going to contrast that, and we want to focus our final attention here with gospel family. What was broken can be beautiful. And I want to show you this. There's, um, if I had to pick a key word, uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, if I had to pick a key word for this section, my word would be affection. You see an incredible amount of affection here. Um, because you hear it said all the time, like, man, you, you, God commands you to love the people at church, but you don't have to like them, right? Like, uh, almost as if love is always this command that is different than emotion, right? Uh, I don't have to feel a certain kind of way towards the people. I just have to act a certain kind of way, which always feels a little shallow or fake or hollow when I hear it. I get it. I get it. But at the same time, is that all we're doing here? Like, it the gospel doesn't touch the realm of my emotion. It's like eating vegetables at your mother's table when you're growing up. Like, I'll do it, but I don't like it, mom, and I never will, right? Like, fine, God, if I have to live with these people, fine. I'll do it, but I won't like it. I don't like it, and I never will. I really? Like, you're gonna, like, God's forever kingdom. That's gonna be our posture in God's forever kingdom. That's a long time to suffer through the suck of not liking or feeling a certain kind of way about the people around you. Um, if I had to pick one word for this whole passage, it would be affection. Like there is, there is real emotion here. You're, you're going to see it. And here's how we're going to see it. Um, if 
we really believe that God's church, his, his, his church is not like a family, but is actually a family, uh, which would be an accurate belief. Paul's going to give us kind of three examples or motifs from family life. The first one is an infant. The second one's a mom. The third one's a dad. Now, don't be tempted to read this and be like, well, when Paul's talking about the infant, like that's a word for the kids in the room. And when he's talking about the mom, that's a word for the ladies in the room. And when he's talking about the dads, that's just the way that the men in the room need to, to, to act. That would be a really bad way to read this text. What Paul's going to do is he's going to hold up infants, he's going to hold up moms, and he's going to hold up dads. And as he holds up infants, he's going to look at all of us, men, women, and kids, and say, um, just as an infant demonstrates affection or lives in this kind of way, all of you, regardless of age, regardless of gender, you should live like this too. And just as a mother expresses affection for her kids in this way, men, you will be you will be more manly if that's your concern, right? If you don't feel masculine enough, you will actually become more masculine per your father this morning if you set out to emulate the affectionate mothers in your life. How about them apples, right? Like that's how you will grow up into the man that God has created you to be. If you will see the beauty expressed uh, in a mother, in a woman this morning, and you will emulate that quality in your life, right? And ladies, same, the, what, what, what Paul's going to hold up or God's going to hold up, this quality in a father, in a man, is for you to emulate. It's not just for the men in this room. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So we're going to see infant and the quality held up for us is gentle. Mom's self-giving love and fathers, uh, it was hard to pick a word for this one. I'm just going to go with encouraging, okay? Encouragement. We'll, we'll see it, though, as we unpack it. So uh, let's start with infants. It's not clear in your text. Does anybody's version this morning actually say infant? Oh, that's a shame. They should. A lot of the manuscripts actually have the word infant. Because I want to show you the contrast. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, we did not seek glory from people, whether from you or others, uh, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but, verse 7, we were gentle among you. Uh, most manuscripts, a lot of manuscripts, actually have the word infant there. So the opposite of making demands is being like an infant. That's, that's the, the, the point that Paul's trying to make and the first point that he wants us to consider. Um, how many of you serve in the children's ministry next door? All right. Uh, for the rest of you, uh, stay close afterwards. We'll pass the iPad around. We'll get you on the roster so you can be serving. My favorite age group next door, my favorite age group, the babies. Uh, second floor, uh, right at, when you get to the top of the stairs, not left. That one's dangerous. Stay away from that one. <laughs> Bang a right. It's the one right there. The infants, right? That's who Paul's talking about right now. Why? Because with exceptions, we all get it. We had a kid who just, uh, anxiety being separated from parents, their number was on the screen all the time. Uh, not particularly pleasant, right? But by and large, infants that are okay being away from mom and dad for, for a few minutes, you just sit them down and they're just there, right? They're just these gentle human beings that are just there, right? They're chubby. They sit there. They've just learned. Weeble wobbles. Am I too old? Weeble wobbles. All right. This old Fisher-Price toy that like it was weighted at the bottom so as it would fall over, like eventually it would just find its way back up, right? Just like the balance would bring it back up. Just these chubby little people. They're curious, they're gentle, and they kind of look at each other in the eye and they'd be like, man, why are you here? And they look back like, 
I don't know, my parents just set me in this little space. Like, I don't get it. I'm like, huh, hey, me too. My parents just set me in here. Like, that's the, 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 the attitude that Paul wants us to have about church. Like, how'd you end up here? I don't know. Okinawa, man, I don't know. This pillar church, gate two street, boobies, tattoo. I don't know. <laughs> my dad just put me here for three years. Huh, funny, me too. Like, I didn't want orders here. I'll never extend here. I'll be here, but I won't like it, right? I'm here. That's the heart posture that God wants us to have, the heart posture of an infant. I'm just here because my dad's got me here for three years, right? And infants, what do they do? They share everything. They have a pacifier. They like it. Like, you should like it too. Like, try this pacifier. <laughs> Put it in your mouth. Like, I probably like the pacifier you have. Can I have that for a little bit? Like, just this inc inclination to share at that age that radically disappears when you go up the stairs and go to the left instead of to the right, right? <laughs> go to the right. What I love about infants is how accepting they are. Um, this will be, I mean, it's kind of funny and gross at the same time, but this is the gentleness that Paul's talking about. What else do infants do? Guaranteed to happen. They eat an entire canister of puffs. Yeah, have you had puffs? Apple cinnamon puffs are the best. Get the apple cinnamon puffs. They eat the puffs and then they spit up the puffs. <laughs> the relationship among infants does not change as bodily functions occur. So we as adults are very... Hmm. our tolerance level is very low. And what do we learn from infants? They're in this room together. They're spitting up all over themselves. They're filling their diapers and they stink. Like, just think about that. They're pooping in their pants and it doesn't change the way that they treat each other. They're still climbing on each other. They're still smiling at each other. They're, they're, they're gentle and they're accepting. Imagine the beauty of a family that was as gentle and as accepting as infants. So that in all of the messes of our lives, because you've spit up while you've been in Okinawa, right? Okay, and if you haven't, you will. You're gonna make a mess. I won't ask the other question, but you're gonna do that too, all over yourself. Life is messy, fam. We have done ourselves a disservice in sanitizing everything in church as if it's this good or this service or this professional environment or this environment we put a mask on, put a face on, when in reality we're all infants that spit up and all the other things every day. Rather than being demanding, gospel beauty cultivates the heart of an infant in that we are gentle, curious, sharing, and accepting, even in our worst of messes. We don't kick kids out of the nursery until mom and dad come and pick them back up. And that's how we want to roll. We share a season of life. We make messes. We're forgiven our messes. We're cleaned up of our messes. But all the while, surrounded by a family that doesn't lose its gentle, curious, inviting, sharing posture, the beauty of infants. Man, got to go. Take one week off and I forget how to preach in under 40 minutes. And then there's a comma, verse seven, Paul says, also like a, like a nursing mom taking care of her own kids. That's beautiful. So being a nursing mom is, here's, here's his words, affectionately desirous of you. Be like that, be like the mom. So there it is. Gospel goes to realm of desire. You can't just look at God and be like, well, I don't like these people, but I'll do it. Like, fine. No, like the gospel goes after your desire, like your affections too. 
Uh, you can't just eat the vegetables in God's family. Like, you got to like the vegetables, right? Um, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready, look at this line, ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, that's what he's been talking about, but also share, what are those next three words? Our own selves. Is that not a beautiful family? Because you had become very dear to us. That's a mom. Affectionately desirous, loving her baby so much that she would share not only what she has or what she does, her time, but she would actually share her own self. She birthed you from her body. She feeds you from her body. She's sleep deprived because of you, but all, by and large, a source of joy, eventually, uh, she loves you. And so just as Paul would point us to the posture of an infant now, men, men, listen, he's calling you, he's looking at you in the eye and saying, if you want to be a maturing Christian, if you want to grow into the fullness of your masculinity, uh, be less like the culture says men should be, less Joe Rogan, less Jordan Peterson, less fill in the blank, whoever it is that you like to podcast, YouTube, whatever, and more like what Jesus says, and that in this way, your life would emulate a nursing mom, right? then you'll begin to touch the kind of masculinity that God has created you for. Um, I got a picture of my, my mom. I think it's one slide over maybe. Uh, she's there somewhere. Keep going. Oh, man. Did I not get my... She's not in the slide deck? <laughs> That's not my mom. <laughs> There's... Oh, one more. I think there's, I can see her. Can you see her? There's mom. There, yeah, right. And I think that's me. It might be my older brother. I don't really know. It's in my scrapbook, but I'm second born, so pretty much all the pictures are my brother. Um, my mom still loves me, and I've come to accept this, but that's probably my older brother. Um, you can't really see her eyes. Um, I got her eyes there, but, but, but you can see the way her body is postured towards me. Guys, just think about that. Think about how beautiful our family would be, how beautiful any church family would be if our posture towards each other looked like that, that we had that kind of a gaze for each other, that kind of a concern. My mom was concerned about my flourishing and my well-being. I was thinking about mom. Actually, I, was, I stayed with my parents uh, while I was in Louisville. Uh, the clothes I'm wearing smell like my mom's detergent because even at 42, she washed all my clothes and folded them for me before I came back. So I can smell my mom's detergent, right? And I was thinking about mom, and I was thinking, uh, like, if I were trying to introduce you, one of my friends, and talk about how good you are or how good of a friend you are, I could, I could turn to somebody who didn't know you and be like, yeah, this is my friend uh, Levi, and there was this one time right? And Levi would do the same for me, like, ah, this is my friend John, and hey, what kind of guy is John? Oh, there was this one time that John, fill in the blank. Do you know that when you're talking about your mom, you, you can't describe mom that way. It's impossible to be like, hey, this is my mom, and there was one time. Because with moms, it's not a one time, it's a lifetime. That's what Paul's calling us to in gospel beauty. It is it's not a one time, like, well, I'll do this nice thing for them, do the check the church box. Like, it is a lifetime posture. Right? It's beautiful. And then for the men, uh, not for the men, the, he holds up the father for all of us to emulate in this way. Um, verse 11, you know how like a father with his children, 
you'll see three things. They all kind of run together to kind of make one big point. Verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged. Those words are so closely related. It's kind encouragement, speaking life-giving words. You can do it, son. You can do it, girl. I love you. Like all the, I'm so proud of you. All the life-giving, encouraging kind of words from a father. And then there's one word that's a little bit different that carries like a little more authority and some weight to it. Each one of you and I and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. In other words, again, this isn't just for the men in the room, that all of us would have the posture of a father that we make it our mission to speak life giving, life affirming. I'm proud of you. You can do it. I'm here with you. Kind of words, building each other up but also with the weight of, look, look at what God has called us to, to live in this kind of way as citizens or members of his family and citizens of his kingdom, a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, his own family, like a dad. And uh, all right, now for the picture where you thought that was my mom, back to the other, uh, the other picture. This is a picture of uh, Derek Redmond, um, 1992. Uh, Barcelona Olympics. I was 12. Who else was 12 in 92? All right. Hey, yeah. All right. Look at you. Some of you weren't even born in 92. Uh, he's from Britain. He held several records in Britain for 400 meter events, just really the fastest man uh, uh, in the kingdom at the time. And so he went to the Barcelona Olympics. He was just into this 400 meter event and, and one of his hammies just, just shot, just gone, excruciating pain. Uh, he goes to the ground. He tries to get up to finish. And while he's trying to get up, his dad runs down out of the stands. That's Jim, his father. And I should have gotten a different picture. I love it because he's such a dad. Even his t-shirt. Uh, have you hugged your foot today? Like he's even wearing a dad t-shirt, right? Like your dad wears that t-shirt. And uh, he runs down out of the stands. He runs to his son. He gets down on the ground with him. And he looks his son in the eye, who's in excruciating pain, and he says, Derek, you don't have to do this. And Derek looked his dad in the eye and he said, yeah, I do, dad. I, I have to finish this. And so Jim looks Derek back in the eye and he says, then we're finishing together. That's beautiful. Guys, that's what God the Father is calling us to emulate in this family. For you kids who are in the room, for you ladies, and for you men that we, the beauty of our family would look like a father in that when we see each other go down, and listen, if you're new to Okinawa, it can be a meat grinder here, you're gonna go down. Something's gonna happen relationally, personally, with your mental health, with your emotional health, it's a reality. But in God's family, when we see each other go down, we don't discard family members. We run down to the track, we get down on our knees, we show empathy, and love, and then we stand together and we finish together. We cross the finish line together. And guys, that's the difference between gospel fake and gospel family. You don't get gospel family by going gospel family. How do we get to gospel family? A heart receptivity to the gospel because the gospel goes to work. And that's exactly what Darren is gonna show us next week, the gospel going to work. Uh, let's pray, and then the team will come and lead us uh, in response. Father, many of us have been affected by gospel fake cultures. I pray that you would heal the woundedness, the brokenness in our lives. 
Father, there are elements of our own culture. We're not naive. We're not a perfect church. We know that our hearts naturally bend towards brokenness. We know anytime we're not receptive to the gospel, brokenness occurs. So Father, please show us those areas of brokenness in our family and bend us back towards beauty. Help us to be gentle like infants, self-giving like moms, and encouraging like dads. And Father, for anyone in this room who feels like they don't have a family in Okinawa, please fold them into your family here and show them your kindness through the men and the women and the kids who are already a part of your family here. Make it beautiful and please heal the brokenness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.